Hello, and welcome to the Hard Tech Podcast. I am your host, Daniel Lapore. I'm an engineer and founder of multiple hardware startups. Today, my guest is Siddharth Thakur, an engineering prodigy who finished high school at the age of 15, invented an award-winning advanced robot technology at 17. Now, at age 19, Siddharth has already founded two tech startups, which have had an impact on issues ranging from firefighting to carbon capture. He has won several awards for his work in academia and in the startup world. Today's conversation will be centered around Siddharth's role as founder and CEO of Paradigm Robotics, where he oversees the development of robots to fight fires in buildings for search and rescue purposes. Please enjoy. The actor Steve Buscemi once said, when I was a fireman, I was in a lot of burning buildings. It was a great job, the only job I ever had that compares with the thrill of acting. Obviously, firefighting is a dangerous but honorable profession. Broadly speaking, um, what tools are currently available to protect these brave servicemen and women as they carry out their jobs? That's a great question. Unfortunately, at the moment, a lot of the firefighting industry right now is based on a lot of basic primary uh, search instructions, tools, trainings, and practices. So what you essentially have is firefighters have their PPE, their personal protective equipment. So this is essentially their fire suit. However, this technology has not really changed much over the last 30, 40 years. In the past 20 years, SCBA has come out, which is called self-contained breathing apparatus. This is the tanks and masks and gas masks that you see in firefighters. However, for a majority of time, firefighters either can't afford this or it's not been regulated or firefighters themselves aren't choosing to wear the equipment when they go inside. So that's sort of how firefighters are protected. In reality, when they go inside a fire or a structural fire, there is a very limited technological solutions out there to help protect them. They're on their hands and knees. They can't see anything. It's pitch black inside there. There's smoke filling their lungs. And they're just feeling for victims. They're feeling for rubble. They're crying out to see if anyone's there. They can't see anything. And so what you have now is these really, really basic techniques where if they need to search the center of a room, they place a bag in the corner. They tie a rope to it. And they hold onto the rope as they go to the center of the room so that they can find their way back to the wall. Because if they lose that wall, they're dead. Mm. Because it, you can't see anything. And so during the search and rescue phase, in the, at the scene of a structural fire, it's very, very quick, but very, very inefficient because these firefighters are relying on these primary search techniques. For the actual firefighting itself, a lot of times they have other things, right? They have fire suppression equipment, they have hoses, they have lines and things like this. This space is a lot more technological development, ways to faster fight the flames itself. However, this space here does place firefighters in risk, but not as much risk as the search and rescue where they're required to go into these buildings to search for signs of human life. Mm. So it, based on everything you've described, it seems like uh, we could apply a lot of new technologies to search and rescue uh, space for firefighting to basically save lives. Yeah. Uh, and the technology you are developing is, is just one of those. Absolutely. It's a massively underserved market that's uh -huh. very fragmented. These firefighters have faced these issues for decades, centuries, some would say, and no one's ever developed solutions for them. Mm -hmm. So these firefighters have become traditionalists where they're relying on these techniques because they know they've worked for 10, 20, 30, 40 years as long as they can remember. Yeah. But at the same time, they know every year one of their buddies might die.
or be injured. Mm. And then they're taken out for the next couple of years. Mm. And so that's the reality that these firefighters face, but the bravery and their courage pushes them forward. Yeah, And so that's essentially the, mar the, the market that you have here where there's not many solutions or tools developed. There is one I should mention for clarity. Mm -hmm. It's called the thermal imaging camera. This came out maybe about 10, 20 years ago. It's a handheld, uh, think like thermal sensor in the palm of your hand, it has a screen and a camera. And so this shows the thermal readings of a room. And so firefighters can use this to see if a human's inside. But now let's look at the three big issues with it. One, it can cost up to $40,000. Two, it's not even heat protected. There's no insulation from the fire, so it can mm. fail. And finally, the most important issue is you're still required to go into the structure to use it. And so all this means is that 63% of the time, firefighters don't have one on them. Mm -hmm. Either they can't afford one, or they left it in their fire truck, or it fails, or it's not even usable in the fire. Mm -hmm. And so while this solution was developed, there is a lack of adoption by fire departments because of all those three reasons I talked about earlier. Okay, so this is probably why a lot of uh, technologies have not been, not been developed yet in the space, right? Because of the insulation issue right. and having to carry like equip, extra equipment yeah. uh, into, Absolutely. into a burning building. Okay, uh, that makes sense. Right. And, and what's funny is, the new material has been developed for building houses mm -hmm. and building structures. Yeah. But the ways of fighting fires for these structures have remained the same. Right. That makes no sense. Absolutely. And I think you can separate this geographically as well uh, mm -hmm. in places like Europe and places like the U.S. and developing countries. You essentially have a trend in the U.S., unfortunately, towards cheaper and cheaper building materials that use less and less uh, fire-rated insulation, um, that mm -hmm. use less and less... Uh, more structurally sound members and things like this. So what you have is more and more dangerous situations for firefighters, and more importantly, less time before the building collapses. And so if you look over time in the U.S. at how long firefighters had to search a structural fire, mm -hmm. a typical residential house, the numbers have dropped by minutes over the years. Okay. And every minute counts. This essentially means that what's the time from the start of a fire to flashpoint, where the building simultaneously combusts and the building begins collapsing? And so firefighters have less and less time in the U.S. to search buildings. You look at other countries or locations like Europe or maybe developing countries where there is actually a trend towards better building materials, materials that are infused with fire retardant or things like this. Firefighting has changed dramatically, and it's allowed them to focus on more technologically advanced techniques and things like this. There is still the core of issues that I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. but it's just sort of two developing markets where one place is becoming more difficult and hazardous, and the other one is somewhat becoming safer. So wow. that's sort of how the buildings uh, come into the picture. That makes, wow, this, is, this, is, this sounds very problematic, especially <laughs> within the US, like you described, like you actually need to get into the building, you actually need to act faster now, but right. you, you have the same tools from 30 years ago. Exactly. You got wow. It. I mentioned developing countries earlier. Um, so I've had the opportunity to work from firefighters from Brazil, Israel, South America, um, a few from Jordan, uh, Eastern European countries. And so in a lot of developing countries, and obviously some of those countries aren't very much so developing, but they are facing these same or similar issues. And they're, find, they're finding ways to sort of do, you know, you know, circumvent the problems that the U.S. is facing, but they're running into the same challenges. And so a lot of the work that I'm trying to do is help these fire departments learn from the mistakes that are going on in the U.S. right now. Not mistakes necessarily, more of just technological lack of innovation. Mm -hmm. And so 
a lot of these developing countries have the opportunity to innovate earlier while they're developing at this level. And that's something I'm really focused on as well. The solution that I'm developing is not just for the U.S. It's for the world, right? These problems are everywhere. So That makes sense. Why do you think it's harder for the U.S. to make advancements in terms of like making sure buildings are safer mm -hmm. against fires right. or making sure technologies are developed that help fi fight fires faster mm -hmm. or better? Yeah. Are we talking about three-letter agencies here or something <laughs> like that? No, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think it's a combination of a few things. I think one in the U.S., at least for firefighting, there's been a lack of attention and um, care sort of given, or so you can put this in one way, money. There's a lack mm. of federal and state funding towards research and innovation at firefighting. And unfortunately, you can look at the numbers and you can see not only not a downward trend, but an essentially a very low amount given to firefighting. The good news is that in the past five, six years, this number has dramatically increased, primarily as a result of cancer research. So firefighters have a 14% higher cancer rate and a 7% higher cancer mortality rate than the general population. They're the number one industry for cancer. And so this has put a lot of public attention to firefighting as well as private attention. The instant you get those two things, you get a lot of uh, governmental pressure. And so this has put a lot of research, tax dollars, and funding towards this issue. And so at least in the U.S., I think the crux of the issue, why there's been a lack of technological innovation, it was just a very underserved market. Um, people sort of look at firefighters and say, hey, they're great, they're brave, but they're not really thinking of ways to help them. The second biggest aspect, I think, is it's a very challenging field. Um, if you look at sort of uh, emergency response, until 9-11, there really wasn't significant robotics development and emergency response. No one ever mm -hmm. really thought of, all right, let's put robotics and help people inside emergency situations. Sure, people have thought of it, but executing is one other thing. Since 9-11, there's been a lot, like the Fukushima disaster, the Surfside collapse, earthquakes, tsunamis, collapses, X, Y, Z. And there's been a lot of work developed now to develop robots for them. But the only application of robotics to firefighting has started very recently. Mm -hmm. And so the timeline has just been very short, and I think that's the main reason why there's been you know, lack of innovation. I see. The final answer to your question is sort of you said the U.S. specifically, right? Yeah. I think there's also capitalistic tendencies that help drive the cost of buildings downwards, which is great. It opens up the avenue for more people to afford homes and things mm -hmm. like this, helps people uh, afford stable housing. The problem is for the firefighting industry, which mm -hmm. has to battle that issue. And yeah. so it's sort of a balancing act. Wow. There must be a reason why it's easy to approve uh, these new materials and these new ways of building uh, houses or structures that... Right that are less uh, efficient or less um, less durable. Right. Do you think firefighting is the only issue that is affected by the way we build uh, uh, yeah. our buildings nowadays or are there other things like, like I don't know, flooding or yeah. things like yeah. that would be more impactful now based yeah. on how we build things? You got it exactly. There is a broad variety of issues stemming from this. Wow. I think the first thing uh, you mentioned is like, how are they certified and sort of up to code and things like this. Uh -huh. You ask firefighters, sure, all these buildings are up to code, they've met standards. The reality of it is there's a lack, there's a disconnect between what's code and what sort of actually works in the real world. Yeah. And so what you're having is 
sure buildings are being certified, but every firefighter is going to tell you these buildings are getting worse and worse over time. And so there's a disconnect there. The second half of your question, right, what are the other issues? Let's just look at Florida, for example, right? Mm -hmm. All the couple hurricanes, these cheap buildings that are being built near the coastlines are collapsing so quickly to winds from hurricanes. Mm -hmm. And sure, you could make arguments and say that, okay, they're not meant to be there. You know, tsunamis, uh, hurricanes, things like this will damage them. But you can also see that the general trend is two weaker buildings with less supports, uh, less strength and things like this. Even in Houston, where I've lived for a couple of years, a lot of these buildings aren't built with the same flood protections that older ones were. Hmm. And so you're having the same issues now where they rot a lot quicker, they get mold a lot quicker, they're not built to the same sort of standards in a neighborhood that's protected by levees, and so you're having issues with flooding now. Um, you look in wildfire-prone regions like California, you I mean even Texas, all over the world really, these buildings, once again, you know, they're prone towards dry combustion and things like this. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, the, the, the general trend towards cheaper, low-cost building materials has resulted in an uptick of, you know, sort of other disasters. Wow. So we could, we could have an entirely different discussion about building integrity oh, yeah. and, and, and how we should be building houses nowadays instead of, wow, <laughs> wow. Uh, but that's not what this podcast today, that's not what today's <laughs> discussion is about. engineering podcast. Yeah, yeah. But no, but it, it, it's, I, I, there's a lot to talk about. Oh, yeah. But let's go back to structural fires. Sure. Right. Let's go back to your, to your main thing right now. Uh, can you paint a picture of the economic and human life impact of mm -hmm. structural fires nowadays? Sure. So let's look at the structural fire sort of uh, economic impact over one year. So on average, uh, structural fires cause about 60,000 injuries. Um, they cause about 30 to 40 fatalities every year. Mm. So what does this mean? The average cost of an injury in the U.S. is about ninety-five dollars to $100,000. Conservatively, this means the industry spends anywhere from $5 billion every year upwards of to $20 billion every year. So mm -hmm. this is the whole sort of fire ground injury market. There's a lot of injuries that happen due to other things, right? Firefighters can have heart attacks, strokes, vehicle fires, EMS responses. There's many other things, but let's just focus on structural fires. And the fatality side of things, how do you calculate the loss of a human life? It's incalculable. Unfortunately, if you were to put metrics on it, you can find numbers. And fatalities can go upwards of $10 million hmm. of expenses for fire departments. The key thing here is that it's not just fire departments paying the price, right? It's through municipal governments or insurance companies. And so what this all amounts to is that in cases where there's cancer or lifelong health illnesses, they can spend up to $1 million or more before fatality expenses. Mm -hmm. And so now you're spending billions of dollars on injuries as well as equally as amount for fatalities. The other key thing with fatalities is the public image, right? You know, this whole idea started from awareness of a firefighter that died, right, in my local community. And so the public image is incredibly important, puts a lot of pressure on municipal governments to act. And so in structural fires, there's a lot of injuries. The injuries are actually going up over time. There's been a uh, a 2%, 4% uptick over the past couple of years, year and year average. The fatalities are going up. Even this year, there's been, uh, you know, quite a few structural fires, injury deaths already. The key thing is I am focused on the structural fire market, but I'm specifically focused on the search and rescue aspect within mm -hmm. structural fires. And so that's about 25% of all the numbers I just said. 
And okay. so this means about 20,000 injuries, about 20,000 hazardous material exposures. And so combined, it comes out to be like 35,000 injuries and exposures reduced, um, about you know four to five fatalities every year just for search and rescue. This year, mm-hmm. there's been seven search and rescue fatalities. Um, so yeah, that's sort of what the yeah. economic and you know uh, landscape looks like. Wow, wait, you there's a lot more than that in some of our countries. No, oh, recently yeah. we've been seeing a lot of uh, damage. A lot yeah. of people dying due to fires. I I, I saw a video the other day of a uh, was a wedding or something mm-hmm. in some country, and, right. and more than a hundred people died, wow. including the, the entire family of the bride. Wow. And most of the family, well, some of the family of the groom. That's terrible. And a lot of the guests. That's terrible. Um, I guess I should I should clarify. So this is only for firefighters. Yeah. So these oh, for firefighters. Okay. are only for firefighters. Okay. If we include civilian injuries, these numbers balloon up to millions. Uh-huh. If we include civilian fatalities, these numbers go up to thousands. Yeah. And so you're absolutely right. That's, That's an important distinction because yes. because yes. Um, obviously one life lost to fire is one life too many. Right. Right. But four to five, five firefighters dying this year so far. Yep. Uh, if you if you extrapolate that, if you if you calculate that for the general public, it's a lot more. Right. It's a lot worse. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. one of the big things with Firebot that we're trying to do is help increase the chance that a civilian is rescued faster, faster. and okay. safer. And so every person that Firebot can rescue faster mm-hmm. is one mitigated injury, one mitigated fatality for the civilian population. Yeah. And so the frequency that that which happens is a lot higher than firefighters just because there's a lot more civilians trapped in fires. Yeah. And so the numbers for that, like I said, are in the thousands and millions. So there's a much higher, uh, not a market necessarily you'd say, yeah. but there's the injury expenses are enormous. So Yeah, so search and rescue for firefighters. Correct. And and obviously as, a, as, as an emerging startup, you wanna niche down, right? right? I, I get it, perfect way to get started. But I can't help but notice that if you're saving four to five firefighters, you're probably saving hundreds of civilians in the process. Right. Also, right. even if even if it's a session rescue mission for someone who's gotten lost in there or something like that, they went there to pick up somebody or some people. Right. So you could be saving civilians in the process also. Right. I guess I should clarify. So the robot is not designed for search and rescue for firefighters in the sense of it's not searching for firefighters. Okay. So let's paint the picture of what yeah. Firebot does. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was going <laughs> to be the next discussion, oh. actually. So just get into it. Fantastic. Go ahead, because, no because yeah, I I'll think I, I put the card before the horse. Yeah. No Go worries, on. no worries. You're absolutely right. Firebot is designed to do search and rescue, period. Mm-hmm. Firebot is the world's first high temperature resistant robot that can be deployed into structural fires to efficiently search for signs of human life, such as civilians while also identifying any hazardous situation that may lie inside the structural fire without requiring firefighters to physically enter and risk their lives. Mm -hmm. So Firebot essentially is providing situational awareness inside the burning building at providing life critical information such as, is there victims inside the fire? Where are they? Are there toxic gases? What is the weather, uh, the, the environment inside the structural fire? And it's reporting all this information in real time to the firefighter who's safely outside the structure. So essentially, Firebot is augmenting the search process for firefighters. Mm-hmm. It's making it more efficient, faster, and safer, all while keeping these you know firefighters outside the, the burning building itself. Oh, so right. I, I see, I see. Yep. So 
the, the four to five that would have gone in and, and died in the exactly. process of trying to rescue people and exactly. just outside, just just operating you got it. Firebot. You got okay. it. So fire, Firebot is essentially designed to help firefighters do the search and rescue. Uh-huh. At every structural fire, firefighters are required to mm. search to, to enter burning buildings and search for signs of human life. This mm. is required by policy, by regulation all around the country. However, 60% of the time, there's no one inside the structure. And so you have firefighters needlessly risking their lives due to these dangerous, uh. unpredictable elements. And so Firebot helps accomplish the thorough search that they're required to do uh-huh. while keeping them safe. Yeah. And so the problem we're essentially trying to solve here is firefighters doing search and rescue. Mm-hmm. So now you understand how we're helping civilians at our core. Yeah. We're keeping these civilians safe, finding them when they're trapped or injured inside burning buildings, mm-hmm. as well as keeping these firefighters safe. Wow, okay, so how how many times have we seen a situation in which uh, there's no one in the building, but we, you don't know, it's the building's on fire and then someone goes in there needlessly. How often does that happen? 60% of the time. Six, oh, that's what you said, no, 60% okay, of the okay, time. No worries. So what, what you have here is, let's take a recent fire. Uh, in Waco, there's a Walmart fire happened last year, massive. Um, this is like a 40 to 50 truck call. So that means 40 to 50 different fire trucks from around the counties came. Um, this was a massive fire that required, you know, eight to 10 teams of firefighters just to search the structure. They had to search the structure while this entire building was on fire. The aisles were collapsing over. A Walmart is massive. Think mm-hmm. a super center. However, they were required to search every aisle, every row, every column for people. And did they find people? Maybe they found one. I'll be honest, I don't think they actually found anyone. Mm-hmm. I think the building was completely empty. Mm-hmm. And so now what you have here is these hundreds of firefighters that risk their lives. There was several injuries that happened that day at that, at that fire ground. Thankfully, no one died, mm-hmm. but there were several injuries. And each one of those is thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right? Yeah, and and not to talk about the exposure to cancerous exactly. uh, agents and things like that. Exactly. Um, you know, you burn any sort of insulation, you burn any sort of wood, you're uh-huh. releasing toxic gases in the air. Yeah. And like I said earlier, every minute that a firefighter is exposed is another chance that they get cancer. Yeah. Um, that's that's incredible. Yeah, it's it's almost guaranteed in the industry right now that you will be exposed to cancerous elements. You you know when you enter firefighting that you will be exposed. Mm-hmm. Whether or not you get cancer is the question. And like you said, they are mandated to right. go into burning right. buildings. Right. It's it's essentially a combination of federal policy, state policy, local policy, right, of how firefighting should be done. Mm-hmm. You go into the firefighting textbook, step one is primary search. Mm-hmm. You will conduct this. You must conduct this unless it's deemed life-threatening. What does life-threatening look like? That's a subjective review, right? If a fire commander, the incident commander, determines that the building is at flashpoint, meaning it's simultaneously combusting, they're not going to tell firefighters to go in. But Mm -hmm. they are brave, they're they're courageous, they're selfless. A lot of times they're going to put the firefighters in, not because they want to risk their brave firefighters. No, it's because they have a duty Mm -hmm. to protect these citizens. Um, And so that comes back to this issue where these firefighters are going into these structures. They are conducting these searches. Wow. Firefighters are just like police officers then. Yeah. Essentially, it's just instead of fighting crime, they're fighting fires. (laughs) It's a a good way to to look at it, to to fully understand how useful these people are. Yeah. And actually, if you think about it, in, in my opinion, firefighters at this point, so if you look at public service uh-huh. in terms of people, 
in the government. There's really three categories. You have police. So when you call 911, you get three options. You get police, you get fire, and you get EMS, right? Mm -hmm. Actually, if you want to know, EMS in the United States, 70% of the time, they're run by the firefighters. They're run by the fire departments. Yeah. So now fire departments are doing both medical response and firefighting. Let's take a step further. If there's a chemical, a bomb leak, if a cat was stuck in a tree, if you got your fingers stuck in something, if your head was stuck in a swing set, if you hurt your leg and you're injured, any number of these calls, including if there was a bomb threat or a nuclear bomb, all come to the firefighters. At this point in time, the fire department has consolidated the entirety of every single public utility function mm -hmm. other than the police response. And even then, they have an arson unit. They have a police investigation unit. Fire departments at this point do a significant number of tasks for yeah. the city. Um, so they're overwhelmed. They're sometimes underfunded if they don't have enough you know, funding. Um, but a lot of the time, they just have too many things. They do sort of everything. They're very much so generalists in that way. And these duties have grown over time. Inherently, they just started fighting the fire. But yeah. as time, as more problems developed, as cities grew, as threats grew, more responsibilities were bundled into fire departments. And wow. so while I agree that you know firefighters fight fire, police fight crime, firefighters do a hell of a lot more than more that as well. Than that. So, yep. Okay. Thanks for clarifying no, that. No, no worries. It just it's a no one really knows the full extent of <laughs> what firefighters do, so it's it's good to talk about. I didn't. I, I you know, I actually have had interactions with, with firefighters beyond oh. firefighting. Oh, good. But they've been good. useful beyond firefighting. I just thought it was, you know, they were called upon because it was an emergency situation <laughs> and right. uh, you know, any anyone could help. I didn't yeah. realize that they actually do that even outside of oh yeah. pure emergency. This happened during, you know, that whole uh, snowstorm. In oh, 2021. Right. That's another example. Yeah. They yeah. were yeah. They, they were the only ones who were useful to us wow. during that period. Were you that, stuck somewhere or something like that? Yeah. Or? We're all stuck, no? <laughs> Where were you? Where were you in 2021? Uh, I was in Houston. Houston. Uh, good for you, man. Yeah. Good for you. <laughs> okay, we had Harvey a few years earlier, so I don't know how. Uh, oh, no. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> no, no worries. No worries. But yeah, at least we survived the worst of the ice yeah. storm. Yeah. No, no. They were... Um, the firefighters uh, close closer to us were responsible for bringing supplies, mm. bringing space heaters, things like wow. that. That's lovely. That, you know, they did that. so they, they're actually very useful, and very helpful. Um, shout out to all the firefighters <laughs> out there. You guys, are <laughs> oh yeah, God sent. They you rock. Know? Yeah, no, I'm glad to hear that. They, or a God sent. Yeah, during the winter time, actually, people expect firefighters' jobs to get easier during the winter time. Yeah, actually, that's the no. worst. Uh, yeah. The most fires happen in the wintertime. Uh -huh. um, and so that's when their jobs actually get the hardest. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wow. Typically, it's because space heaters, um, uh, different heating elements get uh, destroyed. People do weird things with fires in their houses and things like that uh -huh. in an attempt to stay warm. So, Okay. Good, 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 good. Uh, just to recap, sure. uh, Paradigm Robotics, that's your startup, has developed a robot called the Firebot, right? And it's a... Uh, protect the brave men and women fighting fires every day by keeping them out of the fire itself, right. you know? Let's let's go a little bit, let's go into a bit of technical detail. Sure. If you, if you will. Yeah. Just without providing like anything to proprietary. Describe how the robot works. Sure. Uh, from, you know, the, 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 um, the firefighter beginning to operate it to going into the building and coming out and all that stuff. Just sure. how does it work? Great question. So let's talk about a use case of Firebot. So uh -huh. at the scene of a structural fire, the fire truck pulls up. 
what we're building right now is integration with fire truck manufacturers mm -hmm. where firebot is deployed from the side of the fire truck and so what we have is one firefighter is a dedicated robot operator and so they have what we call our firefighter control interface it's a unit that's designed to control firebot uh, wirelessly and remotely from a very significant distance up to five miles in line of sight and up to one mile away and no line of sight with several concrete walls in between and so what you have is firefighters are rapidly deploying Firebot. They bring out this interface and they start driving it immediately into the structure. There's very little time delay because speed is of the essence, right? Mm -hmm. And so firefighters are driving the robot into the structure. Let's take a look at what Firebot looks like. Firebot is an unmanned ground vehicle. It's about the size of, I mean, you can see on camera, maybe about this big here. Yeah. And so Firebot is designed to be small enough to enter structures doorways, crevices, and cracks, while at the same time being beefy enough and rugged. And so Firebot is a tracked vehicle. It's a mm -hmm. robot. And these tracks essentially allow it to climb stairs, obstacle, and debris. It has what we call flipper arms on the front and back of the robot to allow it to circumvent these obstacles. Um, it's very rugged. It's built from you know a lot of different metals, a lot of complex alloys to help it survive these temperatures and environments. Uh, it's jam-packed with sensors. So there's optical sensors like normal cameras, there's mm. thermal cameras, um, there's temperature humidity sensors, there's hazmat sensors for volatile organic compounds, gases, toxic elements, chemicals, things like this. There's smoke, flame, fire sensors. There's odometry and telemetry, everything sort of under the sun. It's a jam-packed robot. Mm -hmm. And so the firefighter is seeing all this data come back on their control interface. Yeah, And so now they're using joysticks to wirelessly drive the robot into the structure. What does a firefighter do? Using the same techniques they learned as they were doing it by hand, they do with the robot. The robot quickly drives into the structure, following the right-hand rule, searching all the rooms on the right side or the left side, doing thorough searches with its camera scanning the structure, looking for victims, identifying toxic gases, elements, or hazardous situations. They drive it through all the rooms, right? They search very, very thoroughly. If they need to go up to the second floor or third floor or over rubble, they use the flipper arms to drive up the stairs and climb over debris. They conduct thorough and efficient searches everywhere in the building before certifying it, right, that they've conducted mm -hmm. their primary search. What happens if they find someone? If they find someone, there's either two categories, if they're conscious or unconscious. If the victim is conscious, which is of a slim minority typically, the firebot has two-way audio and speakers. So you can communicate with the victim from the firefighter, tell them, stay safe, help is on the way. Or you can tell them there might be a path to safety and firebot can lead them out if there's a nearest entrance or egress that's not blocked by debris or too dangerous. The other key thing, right, if the victim is unconscious, as firebot has GPS, location mapping, as well as a siren and strobe light. And so firefighters can quickly identify the precise location of the robot, find the nearest entrance or egress or path to the robot, find the victim, and take them to safety. Mm -hmm. And so now what you have is Firebot has ways to both quickly find conscious or unconscious victims, as well as by doing this faster than a firefighter could by quickly alerting of where that exact location is. And then it can continue its search operations. So that's what the use case of a firebot would look like. We hope to do this at twice the speed of a firefighter. We can move twice as fast as them. We can search through our cameras many, many times faster than their eyes. And I mean, sorry, they can't even see inside a fire many times faster <laughs> than their hands can search. Yeah. And so now what we're doing is we're taking that six to seven minute search time 
and making it three minutes. Yeah. And so that's three minutes more that a human inside could be found alive. And so that's how we're helping these civilians get a higher chance of coming home safely. Yeah. Uh, sounds, do you have an idea of, um, uh, I have a few questions about this, sure. the way this works and don't worry, I won't go into too much no detail worries. into your technology itself. Go for it. Do you have any idea of how many firebots will be needed depending on the structural size or the number of levels yeah. in the structure? Great question. Uh, what we estimate right now as per our designs is that for the average residential structures, about 22,000 square feet, one firebot will be needed. And so this is a two-floor structure. This is your average house, your average you know, mm -hmm. three to four-bedroom multi-story 20, house. 2,200? Oh, sorry. So, yeah. Yeah, 2,200. Yeah. 2,200 square yeah. foot, okay. That's sort of what we're targeting here. Of course, it's up to the discretion of firefighters. Mm -hmm. What we're hoping to provide is one firebot at every fire truck. So you just have to essentially look at what is the average amount of fire trucks that come to your average structural fire. Yeah. Typically, it's two. It's going to be more as the fire gets worse, as, as things spread. And so that means that there will probably be two firebots on scene. Yeah. That's what we expect for the quickest and fastest search. For structures that are three, floor, four, five, six floors, we want multiple firebots deployed. Mm -hmm. And so like I said, our goal is one firebot for every fire truck. This essentially equates to two firebots every fire station. So in the U.S., there's about 59,000 fire stations. And so you can quickly do the math, and that's how many sort of firebots we want to deploy to ensure the safety of, you know, communities around America. 59,000? Uh, approximately, yeah. Wow. And so that's actually only self the self-reported fire stations. Unfortunately, there isn't a, a, a dedicated database registry of all fire departments and fire stations. And what? so the, the true number is probably significantly higher. Why is that? Why, is, there, is there a reason for keeping some of these locations secret or? I, I think it's mainly just a lack of uh, cohesiveness, consolidation, centralization. A lot of these fire departments were around since the 1600s or 1700s. Some of them were around since the last 20, 30 years. And there's never been like a legal federal requirement to report. Mm -hmm. And so the U.S. Fire Administration, the National Fire Protection Agency, the two biggest uh, U.S. fire agencies, they've began creating these databases. And mm -hmm. they're pretty accurate, I'd say. They have most of them. But 59,000 is the current number. And I'm sure it's a couple thousand more um, if you really dig into it. Yeah, yeah. That's it's, it's funny when you find out about uh, industries or spaces that are just so stuck in the past. And fire, apparently firefighting is one of them. Yeah, that's, absolutely. That's absolutely. crazy. And, and, and the frequency is, I mean, if you want to imagine the frequency at which these structural fires are occurring, it's one every 65 seconds. So in our conversation today, if it lasts an hour, there is 60 fires, structural fires across the U.S. Wow. One every 65 seconds. Yep. And okay. so that number is only increasing. Uh, mm. That was actually the numbers for 2020. Uh, they come out with the reports two years backdated. So I'll get you the yeah. numbers for 2021. So. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Wow. Uh, so I want to go into the uh, topic of how this actually gets into a building and it's fine going in and coming out, which is sure. because it's thermally insulated. Right. Depending on the materials in that building, the fires could get really, really hot. Oh, yeah. Right. If it's steel, for example, uh, well, if you can actually burn steel, but right. um, but how how hot yeah. can this? Uh, how insulated is this? Like Great how how, yeah, yeah. how high of a temperature Let's, can it withstand? Right. Let's talk about the secret sauce and talk about it. Right. Let's talk about <laughs> yeah. what actually makes it you know so novel and unique. Uh -huh. 
So the thermal protection system on FireBot allows FireBot to go into 650 degrees Celsius for mm -hmm. up to 15 minutes. So what is that? Isn't that higher than the temperature of burning steel? That's melting aluminum. Steel. Mine's, okay, steel is higher than that. Steel is about that temperature, and so steel does melt as well. Uh -huh, okay. The exterior of a robot is only stainless steel, titanium, and a couple other alloys that uh -huh. I can't really talk about. And so essentially, what you have is FireBot is designed to go to the some of the hottest temperatures ever that a robot's designed to go into. Okay. I like to call it the hottest robot that has ever been built. If you look at the nearest robot, it's a, a Russian probe that went to Venus. It went to about 450 C. And so that robot melted after a couple minutes. Mm -hmm. And so currently there's been very few, if not no robots that have been developed to go to these temperatures. A lot of other robots that are near these temperatures aren't really operating in an environment that high. Where do we get the 650 C from? That's the average temperature at which flashpoint occurs, where the mm. building simultaneously combusts. So we built our robot to go to these enormously high temperatures and last 15 minutes. A firefighter can't even touch a structure at those temperatures. Mm -hmm. Their suits are rated for only 500 degrees Fahrenheit, which is about 200 degrees Celsius mm -hmm. for five minutes. That's their max rating. And so essentially what we have now is a robot that's designed to go into these extreme environments, still do searches, right? Yeah. And I'll be frank with you, there's very few, very little chance that a human is alive at 650C. It's almost zero, right? Mm -hmm. But our firebot was designed to go to these extremes. Maybe it needs to cross from one room that is not on fire through a room that is on fire to another room to see if there's a victim inside, yeah. right? And so it's built to go in those temperatures. The other side of things is the average temperature. Firebot can operate at 200C for over an hour. And that's sort of the average temperature at the ground floor inside a structural fire. Mm -hmm. In a fire, heat rises, right? So the hottest temperatures are near the ceiling where it can go up to 1,000, 2,000 degrees, right? And so at the floor though, it's relatively cooler. Hence why one of the reasons why we built a ground robot. And so Firebot's technology allows it to operate at these temperatures for an extended amount of time. Of course, it's moving very quickly and it doesn't need 60 minutes to search a structure unless it's very, very large. It's built to last that long. Okay. So it's it's a ground robot for now. You guys have plans to build something that can go multiple floors in the future? Yeah, so it's a ground robot, but it can climb stairs. And no so, way. Really? Yeah, so it has tracks and flipper arms that allows it to climb obstacles and stairs. So one firebot can, can search one, two, three, four, five floor structures. Of course, it takes time to go upstairs. And mm -hmm. so for structures with many floors, they would deploy multiple firebots. But at its core, we built Firebot to climb stairs. That mm -hmm. was one of the fundamental requirements that we built our product off of. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, you could just like take like some kind of arm and drop it off on, his, on, his, on, his, yeah. on the floor if you want. Even yeah. you don't have to like <laughs> you know to like just to make it go up the stairs, I guess, faster. Right. You got it. Um, yeah. What we what we in essence think is a lot of times firefighters uh, use up their ladders. They climb up uh -huh. the ladders on uh, on their aerial exactly. Trucks. Um, and so, yeah. You go up the ladder, yeah. bust the window, put the firebot in there. Exactly. Let it do its work. You got it. Yeah. I mean, multiple ways to get this done. That's, that's incredible. Yep. Okay. And so, yeah, we've just built the technology to really be as versatile as possible, right? We don't know every single way these firefighters are going to use firebot. We're trying our best. We've talked to hundreds of firefighters to help mm -hmm. better understand this, but we want to make sure it's so versatile and modular that 
they can use it whatever way they want. And mm-hmm. we'll get feedback on ways to make it better for them. And so that's part of the way that we've just been, that's been our part of our thesis for building this. I'm really impressed by this technology. I, I am. Like, first of all, it's an underserved market. It's an industry stock in the past. It's technology that is niche, but it's well thought out. Right, like you've thought about everything, <laughs> like within like the immediate use case. You can right. go upstairs, you can go up to higher temperatures than what's been recorded. You, you know, like it's crazy. This is this is really good. I appreciate it. Let me let me get you out of uh, all of the technical stuff sure. about your technology, and you know, let's 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 have a more fun discussion about <laughs> about other ways in which technology can be used. Sure, the firebot. Let's take your firebot and just the way it is. Say okay. I'm not thinking about this right now, but this is how else it could be used. So what other applications are out there that this could be used for? Yeah, that's a great question. It's something we've got a lot over the past couple of years, right? Mm-hmm. Firebot is a great you know, platform. It's a great product. How can we use it in other industries, other verticals? At its core, what Firebot is, is a rugged, resilient platform that can be used for a variety of industries. Let's look at a couple of them. The first obvious one is research. Firebot is a platform that can be used for research. It has a wide variety of sensors and capabilities on top of it. It mm-hmm. can gather data and give unparalleled awareness inside a variety of environments. And so what you have is a very modular research platform. We've even built what we call a plug-and-play system to allow people to plug in different sensors that they want and report the data back to the, to the control interface. That's a big application. The more exciting applications, other than just research, of which is huge, is one is public utilities and Mm -hmm. commercial and manufacturing entities. So let's dig into that a little bit. We've got a lot of interest from public utility companies, electric companies, water companies. These kinds of companies have very significant risks to their workers, to their associates that run these plants. Oftentimes they have to do inspections, certifications, and these processes can take them near dangerous environments or Mm -hmm. hazardous environments. And so public utility companies also require you know, something that can do thorough searches, certifications, inspections, of which Firebot can be a very prime potential candidate. Commercial and manufacturing entities. We spoke with Valero about this. We've talked to a few other companies and corporations in Houston and around sort of the US where they identified a key issue where you can quickly see in oil and gas in commercial spaces, there's very similar you know, risks to workers. Hazardous spills, toxic leaks, um, high temperatures even, mm-hmm. even for nuclear environments, right? Radiative environments. Firebot is built to essentially be a CBRNE resistant robot, chemical, biological, radial, uh, nuclear, and environmental proof, right? It can do a lot while being safe. Mm. And so it can be used in these commercial manufacturing zones to help do situational awareness, keep uh, their workers safe, as well as if anything dangerous happens, it's a first responder. It's right there. Yeah. The last, and there's quite a few more. I'm not, I don't even have to get into yeah, it. Yeah, you could spend all day no talking worries. about yeah. it. Yeah. If someone said, put this on a jet ski to do water rescues no. uh, for, for people that have you know drowned or are missing inside uh, lakes and things. The big a couple, couple ones we've looked at as well is... Um, there's public safety. So with SWAT and police, you know, we have a bomb-proof robot. Firebot can be used for bomb detection, bomb mm-hmm. disposal, IED removal, things like this. Um, we've gotten a few orders from different departments around the country. And essentially, Firebot can be used to help these police departments keep their police officers safe. 
while there are quite a few robots built in this space, none have really been. There's a, there's a few that are as bomb-proof as Firebot is. Yeah. The last big thing that I'd like to touch on is disaster zones. We talked about 9-11 earlier today, talked about the Fukushima disaster, talked about some other collapses. Firebot can be used inside these situations. You know, if we look at the Fukushima disaster and 9-11, those are the first, some of the first examples where robots were used to search for victims. Unfortunately, it's very, very tough, right? The mechanics of getting a robot to circumvent debris and rubble is very difficult. Mm -hmm. However, that technology has gotten better over time. And we're getting to the point now where Firebot is not just innovating on the temperature side, but also innovating on the mechanical side. And so we're building a platform that can go into this rubble, into this debris, into these hazardous environments to look for victims, just like other robots can. Mm. And so we even do testing on that. We work with Texas A&M's Teaks, um, their Brayton Fire Training Field. It's the Western Hemisphere's largest field for training firefighters. And they have what's called Disaster City. They have planes, trains, buildings, rubble piles. They essentially simulated part of 9-11 on this facility. They have entire structures that they crash and burn and destroy to test technology and train firefighters and emergency responders. So we test Firebot there. And so now you can immediately see where applications come in for Firebot to be used in a wide variety of industries. <laughs> yeah, 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 you're right. Just thinking about it, you could basically expand further and talk about a lot of other applications. But explain to me what CBRNE means again. Sure. It's chemical, biological, radial, uh, nuclear, environmental. It's sort of just a category of hazards uh -huh. um, in the US, right? If there's a CBRNE attack, you call 911, a firefighter comes, they deal with it. Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's a bomb, the police might be involved, whether it's a chemical attack, um, then you're going to get some national <laughs> government agencies involved. Um, but essentially, CBRNE is just a class of threats and hazards to human health. Good, 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 good. All right, let's talk about you. Okay, we've been talking about technologies, talking about uh, firefighting, talking about firebots mm -hmm. and firebot applications, but you're 19 years old. Uh, you know, I was talking to you before we started shooting this, <laughs> saying that you're basically one of the youngest founders I've ever seen in the hardware, you know, startup space. Uh, typically, we don't see like uh, really young people and it's trying to build hardware technologies because it's really, really hard to do that. And you are doing it at the age of 19. So I have to ask, can you talk about your background <laughs> and motivation for for wanting to do this, you know, for studying electrical engineering and building robots? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'll be honest with you. I didn't know I was going to be doing this two years ago or three years ago. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've lived a bit of around the country, you know, all over the, the Midwest, the East Coast, and then the South here. And in my times, I've never really been someone who's really taken a hard look on entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. All my life, I was a tinkerer, a problem solver. Um, I tinkered with Legos. I disassembled robots. I built things out of nothing. I, you know, worked in a wood shop and a machine shop. And all I was doing is sort of just enjoying the process and loving to build things. And when I came into sort of middle school, high school, I began working in sort of theoretical engineering competitions, right? Applying these skills, this tinkering towards solving theoretical problems, building machines, building robots. Uh, you know, I founded my high school's robotics club and things like this. And so that was great and gave me great experiences, but I lacked what I felt was at my core passion is my humanitarian side, right? Mm -hmm. Helping people, 
solving real problems. And so what I yearned to do was essentially take my engineering skills and solve real problems, help people stop doing this theoretical engineering challenges. And so coming into university and towards the latter half of high school, that's what I began to do primarily through Firebot, right? I found a real issue in my community, right? I heard on the news about the death of a local firefighter and that motivated me to reach out to my local fire department. Starting Firebot was a really organic process. Mm -hmm. I was just, you know, looking for a problem to solve. I happened to chance upon one and I was really motivated to help tackle this. And you're absolutely right. It is very difficult to fathom that, you know, I'd be doing this as entrepreneurship, but it didn't start that way. It started as just a passion project, yeah. right? building this robot to solve this issue. Along the way, I realized that it's very difficult to actually make something that mm -hmm. solves this issue unless you commercialize and make it into a product, into yeah. a company. That's where entrepreneurship came in. So when I came to UT, um, coming to university, that was where the main switch happened, transforming it into a startup yeah. towards making this idea, this passion project into reality. Yeah, yeah, and they say that the best way to build a startup is really to build it around a problem that is near and dear to your heart, right. basically. Absolutely. Yeah, if you're trying to solve a problem that applies to you in some way, even if it's <laughs> not directly, right. you're going to passionately try to solve it. Right. And you're gonna solve gonna be able to survive some of the some of the downs yeah. that 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 would happen to you. No, exactly. I mean, it, yeah. it's the passion of my heart that keeps us going yeah. and the rest of my team as well, right? I mean, there's very difficult challenges we're solving, right? It's actually very interesting you mentioned university earlier. I think university has been some of the greatest strengths of our startup mm -hmm. in the sense of university has given us facilities, mm -hmm. equipment, funding, resources, access to faculty and advisors. It's a great collaborative environment for starting startups. It's been fantastic. And, you know, in some ways, like you said, it's the problem that keeps you going. And I've been able to find like-minded people in university who share my passion for this problem. And so coming to university and expanding and growing the organization has been really key towards helping this develop, especially, you know, as we're all students and things like this. The other big thing I want to mention as your first question, right, starting a startup in college, it's actually interesting. Uh, Paradigm Robotics is one of the first, if not uh, one of like the first like serious engineering undergraduate startup that has come out of UT in many years. And the reason for that is still quite, you know, uh, failing me. Um, I think the primary reason for this is A, there's a lack of attention given mm -hmm. towards engineering undergraduates. A lot of focus is on graduate students commercializing research. And so there's a lack of attention, a lack of funding, lack of advice. And so Paradigm Robotics has been pushing the pathway for this. Mm -hmm. We've been the guinea pig for a lot of UT programs, for a lot of different funding opportunities that are helping this environment. Yeah. Most of the undergraduate startups are CS or SaaS or business or marketing. <laughs> and so that's a completely different focus. Yeah. So long story short, um, coming to university has been great. I mean, I've gotten a lot of help and support, but at the same time, we've been having to push a pathway to help other organizations, other startups, mm -hmm. right, move our way forward. I helped another robotics organization, a startup, develop, right, and show them the ropes, where the funding opportunities were, who to talk to, and things like this. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's that's another core part of what we're trying to do. You know what's funny is, um, you know, I, I built a startup around my PhD research, mm -hmm. and I learned a lot of things during that process. Right. Um, and I, I, I still think about it uh, sometimes, you know, uh, yeah. that 
I believe that for hardware startups, it's probably better to build a company or a startup around undergraduate research mm, okay. than, than PhD research or, or, or graduate level research, right? The reason is this. For you to get a graduate degree, your research is going to be focused on something entirely new that mm. takes a long time to get to commercialization. Right. Undergraduate research is focused on a variation of an existing technology right, right. that you can commercialize faster. Right. You know, I, I, I honestly think that a lot of focus needs to be put on, you know, uh, on undergraduates that, that want to start a hardware company because I think that's, that's, the, that's the perfect place. Yeah. And almost every hardware tech founder I know has a PhD. <laughs> right, right. It's right. funny, you know. Right. Right. You know, you, you, you might be. No, you're not the first, but you're one of the few ones I've had on the pod so far. That, is, that you know, that, that started or that started you know, during your undergraduate degree. So, I, th I think that's something to yeah. that, that yeah. universities need to pay attention to. And I was also going to mention something that mm -hmm. I think the University of Texas here mm -hmm. in Austin um, is doing a really good job. I've met yeah. a lot of people now that UT is uh, incubating yeah. or helping get their startups going. Like it's oh, yeah. it's incredible. I don't think any university does that. Yeah. And I, I've been to some. I don't yeah. think MIT does that. I don't think Stanford does that, mm -hmm. right? So if they do that, they're probably incubating like software companies or something <laughs> like that, right? So um, yeah. Yeah. so big up to, uh, oh, yeah. to UT. That's no, good. I, absolutely. They have, you know, like 133 different programs, yeah. opportunities for like startups. I mean, it's really fragmented yeah. and unfortunately it's not centralized. But this also offers resources now in a hundred different ways for startups to find yeah. support, networks, advice, funding, X, Y, Z. So that's been great. UT has been fantastic. Like, yeah. It was one of the main reasons why I chose to come to UT and was really excited by exploring the opportunities at UT. Yeah. Um, and I think it's the main reason why a lot of other people come to UT. Yeah. Um, if you look up some of the startup reports um, about universities in the U.S., Sure, MIT, Stanford, and a couple other ones have the most founders, the most unicorns, and the most startups. UT is not far behind. You know, we're still in the top really? ten for numbers of you know startups being founded. The key thing here is the opportunities, right? We have such a wide variety of opportunities, and we plug into the Austin ecosystem mm -hmm. really well. Um, so that's been great. I mean, they're doing better. We're they're growing. They're, they're you know getting more opportunities. But at its core, yeah, UT definitely has a has a great foundation. I like it. I've I've actually seen a few pitches from um, from undergraduates at UT, like trying to launch hardware startups. It's 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 pretty incredible. It's um, that's awesome. Yeah, it's great. So speaking of, uh, let's let's stay on the topic. Mm -hmm. If you met uh, a young uh, someone as young as you are who wants to start like a a startup while in college, and I'm, I'm speaking generally now, not just hardware. Mm -hmm. What are some what, what what are some of the advice that you would want to give to them? Like how to <laughs> continue your undergraduate degree while mm -hmm. launch, launching a startup, yeah. and uh, do they need to take some time off? Do they need mm -hmm. to what, what do they need to do? Right. Um, I gave a talk at um, a summer entrepreneurship session last summer to a, a burgeoning group room full of excited and eager students mm -hmm. ready to jump into entrepreneurship. Some of them were freshmen, some of them were sophomores, some of them were seniors, some were grad students. And so I had to identify what were some of the key pieces of advice for people at different paths in their career, in their collegiate career. And I came down to a sort of a few that sort of brought everything together. I think the first thing is knock on every door, is what I said, right? There's hundreds of opportunities at the, at the university level and the ecosystems around to find advice to find mentorship, to find support, to find funding. 
And a key job, sort of being a collegiate entrepreneur, is utilizing these resources, engaging and learning. Mm -hmm. And that's my second biggest thing, learning and growing, keeping a very, very open mind towards the fact that you will be learning and you should be learning, and you're going to learn a lot of new things that you didn't know about before. And that's something key towards starting a business, right? Having that capacity and curiosity to learn. And if you keep knocking on those doors and you keep learning, you'll be surprised to find the welcoming arms that help you and guide you along this path. Especially at a collegiate you know, level, if you're trying to develop a startup, one thing you mentioned is sort of how do you do that with school? How do you balance the startup and school? And for me, a lot of that comes down to ruthless prioritization and balance. Mm -hmm. Finding out how you balance sort of what you wanna do in your life and prioritizing. It's easy often to overcommit to things, so prioritize what is it that you want to do. A lot of times you don't know, and that's okay. So choose then the top three or five things from your list and then commit to them, right? Part of the whole startup, as I'm sure you know, is you got to commit to it, you know, 100%, 110%. Yeah. And so if you can do that while balancing your school, great. Just make sure you're not overcommitting to other things as well. And so the way you do this is just by ruthless prioritization and then balancing all the sorts of things you want to do in your life. The other big aspect of sort of university entrepreneurship is you have the community, the people here to support you, to help you, to find co-founders, you know, other people to join your team. Utilize that. It's one of the, in my opinion, the best times to grow a team because mm -hmm. you're at college, you meet like oh, yeah. people. You don't have to pay full-time salaries to people. Yeah, It's fantastic. Utilize that resource. And so when I was speaking in that room to all the students, I was like, this is a community. You have a room full of like-minded people. Engage. If mm -hmm. you're trying to make a startup, this is a place to start. Um, so yeah, those are some of the things I'd say to someone trying to start a startup in college. Yes, obviously, some of the best relationships you're going to build will be built in college. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that's incredible. For someone who has been out of college uh, for a while and you know has been in, in the entrepreneurship world for a few years now, I know, I know that for sure. That <laughs> out, sure. once you get out of college, you're basically on your own. You, <laughs> right. you know, so yes, yes, yes. It's easy to be not easy. I mean, I don't mean easy, but like right. it's, it's better to be a 19 year old <laughs> and find other 19 year olds that think like you or want to build a company like you and are, are, are motivated also. Speaking of uh, rootless planning and rootless prioritization. From experience, I know that that's not born out of motivation. Mm. It's not born out of um, even discipline. I mean, mm. discipline plays a huge role. It's born out of a a burning desire and a burning um, a burning need. So, so for example, say say you had someone who had cancer, for example. Mm. Go, you know, I'm not saying <laughs> say 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 you had someone who had cancer and you were close to the forefront of cancer research, mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm you'd probably be able to put a lot of energy into trying to find a cure for that person. Right. Uh, or, uh, your research will be, you'll be doing so much work and right. you'll, be, you'll be motivated to do it. And say you have two or three of those things and right. it's just easy to to figure out, okay, I'm going to do just two, three things, two or three things, even though one of them is enough to take all of my time. Right. Right. right? So, so that's, that's something to take into consideration is, you know, like I said, it's, it's easier to build something around something that's personal to you. No, yeah. right. So, if you're if you're in college and you're trying to build a startup, you know, mm. there's there's probably a problem that that you you have. Yeah, and it's easier to try to solve that problem while going to college because then you'll be able to do both. That's but if you're true. just like, ah, 
I need to make a million dollars or something. Right. Uh, you're probably not going to go that far. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. No, you're right. It, it connects to what you were talking about earlier, right? You're saying that yeah. you know, you have to be very, very passionate about the problem you're solving, and that keeps you going through the hard times, right? Yeah. The low times. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You you gotta have that chip on your shoulder, that that burning block on you, right? Keeps you pushing forward. Mm. Um, and yeah, absolutely. I think that that's a key aspect of where ruthless prioritization comes in, right? You're mm. just saying this is something I'm super passionate about. This is something I want to do. I have to do it. Yeah. Right? It's a necessity. Have to. Yeah. As a keyword. I have to. If you find something that you have to do, then right. you're in a sweet spot exactly. right there. Exactly. Right. Because yeah. then you can convince anyone to join you, right? If you yeah. have to do it, you know it fundamentally, right? That's, yeah. You know, you know what's funny mm -hmm. is uh, I have actually backed like uh, like founders or startups like uh, just purely off of and this person is really passionate about. I mean, obviously they are skilled, right. they're they are talented, they they have the right team, they have all kinds of things you know around them. But most importantly, they're really passionate about this thing. Yeah, <laughs> which means yeah. you're not gonna. They're gonna be like a freight train. Yeah. They'll run through you if you stand <laughs> exactly. in their way, right? Exactly. So that's that's yeah. that's very important. Right. That's that's pretty yeah. cool. Absolutely. Um, I mean, even if the rails of the track are gone, that freight train will continue. Will continue forward. to go forward. Right. That's 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 how I see it. Yeah. <laughs> that's incredible to think about. All right, let's uh, let's, let's move on. So this year, I we actually uh, talked at uh, TechCrunch startup uh, battlefield, the stage. Um, you were there. What was the experience like? How just. Walk me through it briefly. How do you get sure. into uh, TechCrunch Startup Battlefield and yeah. what was the experience like? That's a great question. Um, so part of the nature of our startup is we're bootstrapped, right? We've won, we've applied to hundreds of competitions. We're thankful and grateful to have won, you know, several very large national ones, pitch competitions, innovation competitions. Um, we've won a lot of local ones and that's been great. It's been giving us the funding to keep on going. And so... You know, as a company, we're really grateful to have been supported by so many, so we apply to them, right? We engage and utilize these opportunities, like I spoke about earlier. As a collegiate student, you have to utilize them. TechCrunch was an opportunity that came to our attention, and I heard about this a few years ago, and I've always wanted to go and attend. And so I applied, you know, about May of sort of last year. This is one of the lengthiest applications I've ever gone through. Um, Hmm. It's it's not difficult, but it's very lengthy and time consuming. And so applying through it, you know, I've I've applied to a couple hundred applications and competitions. It took a lot of reflection in terms of what was required. And I didn't really think we had a great chance of getting in. It's a very prestigious competition. There's, you know, ten thousand applicants every year. And so getting that email in August was sort of a shock. Um, we didn't expect we would get in. Um, it was pretty prestigious at the time. And we didn't really fathom sort of what was to come. Over the month that followed, we learned and they had master classes and sessions and teaching and workshops and we learned a lot and prepped our pitch and things like this. And so going from there to San Francisco to presenting to making a booth was an incredible experience. Mm -hmm. And the main reason we were going to San Francisco for Disrupt, TechCrunch Disrupt, was two big things, was for networking and engaging and then visibility. Right, right. The people we were trying to meet were investors, right, helping us raise funding, um, connections to industry experts, founders, roboticists, um, news, press, as well as just interesting people, innovators, disruptors, as well as visibility, right, get our name out there and things like this. And from the course of TechCrunch over those three days, over those three nights, our team was very, very successful and very, very proud of them for what mm -hmm. we did and sort of a first time when we've been on such a global stage and that was that was really exciting for our team, and 
we accomplished a lot of our goals, right? Meeting people, making connections, um, getting good visibility, pitching on stage, things like this. And so overall, TechCrunch was a great experience. I mean, of course, I got to meet people like you, which is awesome, which, is, <laughs> which led me here. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I would, I'd definitely do it all over again. So Sounds good. Uh, actually, I have a question about, since you're bootstrapped right now, right. but obviously you want to raise funding, no? Right. Have you have you run into uh, issues with investors who are like, oh, you're still in school. <laughs> uh, you know, if you just dropped out and did this full time, it would be better. Right. Have, you, have you run into that? Yeah, yeah, okay. no, I have. But for every investor that says you need to drop out of school, there's one who supports you and believes that you don't have to. Uh-huh. And so we have faced pushback from people, but we have also faced you know positive support. Overwhelmingly, though, the key issue is with hardware here. As you uh-huh. know, hardware is a capex business, high capex business, uh-huh. and so you have to raise a significant amount of money. And so with investors, you have to prove that you have the expertise uh-huh. as well as time to really push through. And so, yes, there's been difficulties with sort of getting people that believe in that. But what we talked about earlier, if you believe that you have to do it, I have found many people who believe in that as well. Yeah. And so I'm confident that there are people who don't want us to drop out of college and things like this. Yeah. The other side of things is what I talked about earlier. University gives us resources, facilities, labs, people. I'm not having to pay myself a full-time salary, mm-hmm. right? All of these are pros towards staying in university and building your startup, yeah. right? So there's a balancing act here. Yeah, I, yeah. As we were saying, I just realized something. A lot of startups failed in the first year, and and uh, there's no guarantee that if you went out on your own, not you, but just generally speaking, the startup will survive two years. Exactly. That you know, like exactly. so. I mean, you started your your startup during your PhD, correct? Towards the end, so I had the opportunity it. to finish and okay. then and then and then start it. Okay, fantastic. And I'm sure the university may have provided some sort of support, maybe that bridge in towards helping yeah. develop the startup. So yeah, that's fantastic. And I think that's partly part of the reason why I think that there is a boon towards staying in university and utilizing resources. So I agree. I agree, especially for the fact that what you're building, like you said, is a high capex endeavor right so you you actually you actually have an advantage being there yeah right absolutely. that's true I, we re- you reduce people costs a lot and uh-huh. so you can just focus on the nature of building the product yeah yeah that's fantastic uh your co-founders are also um yeah. so i i guess i didn't really touch on much on that but um coming to university was key towards building the team and uh-huh. so i have two co-founders Jimmy Mahon, my COO, and Krishnan Ram, my CTO, um, met both of them through, you know, coincidences. I think mm-hmm. that's some of how the best connections happen. One was my sweet mate. The other one I met through a friend. And they both developed and grew into some of the most effective, yeah. you know, leaders I've ever seen. And so now they're key towards helping our team, you know, run our operations, our supply chain, our management, yeah. um, our technical side, development, these kinds of things. Yeah, I've met your co-founders and it's weird. Jimmy's talkative like he likes to talk but your older co-founder is extremely shy <laughs> oh at least that was my impression of him like the cto let's just spend it <laughs> does he spend his entire time just building like robots right. or what what does he do he's he's definitely more shy than jimmy yeah um, he has grown a lot through our startup he has been able to become more comfortable speaking yeah. introverted i think when you met him also he was tired after pitching for a couple yeah, of days yeah, yeah. 
But you're right. He focuses on that technical aspect and is able to drive our engineering. I have no forward. problem with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. I mean, some days I just want to be an engineer. I'm an entrepreneur yeah. now most of the time, but right. some days I just want to build things and I don't oh, want yeah. to do any business related stuff. Oh, yeah. So. You got it. I mean, I'm involved <laughs> in, like, we just had a design review last night, right? Yeah. I'm involved with every step of that process. I'd like to be a very technical CEO. Uh -huh. I like to be someone who knows the nitty gritty of what's going on with everything and yeah. contribute to it, make decisions and things like this. What are the names again? Uh, Jimmy and Krishnan. Krishnan. Yep. Yeah. Fantastic. Yep. Nice. All right. Uh, let's talk about something else. Uh, sure. Yesterday, actually, yesterday. <laughs> so uh, you and some founders, some other founders, spent some time hanging out with the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. Yep. Uh, what was that about? It was a very last minute sort of event put together by Capital Factory. Mm -hmm. So I also work on another startup as well called Gazelle. And mm -hmm. so we work in the sustainability tech space. And so we were invited by Capital Factory, sort of last minute request to come present and pitch to Secretary Blinken. Um, he had sort of uh, reached out to Capital Factory just a few days prior. And so they sort of rushed and they selected us out of their couple thousand portfolio companies um, because it made sense for what Blinken was discussing. And so one of the things Blinken is focused, Secretary Blinken is focusing on is agricultural sustainability and food security. Mm -hmm. And so we had the opportunity, we were really grateful to pitch to Secretary Blinken, got to meet with them, take some photos, um, discuss a bit about how what we're doing aligns with some of his initiatives. I think overall it's just really exciting seeing like world leaders support the Austin innovation uh, system, um, seeing that when they come to Austin, that is a key thing that they recognize is important to the city. And so I think that's just really exciting seeing that. Yeah, I love that. I love to see that. Um, you get invited a lot for things like this by Capital Factory or what? Uh, occasionally. Um, this is definitely the most high-profile event uh -huh. I've, I've sort of, high-profile individual I've met, which is fantastic. Um, definitely have the opportunity to meet other really exciting people as well. Mm. Capital Factory has been great for that. Um, other sort of entrepreneurship networks around Austin have been great as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think I have opportunities like this, right? I mean, this is a fantastic opportunity. Absolutely. And, and so I, I, uh, I'm just really grateful, I think, for the ecosystem around here. So yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. Uh, Roger was also there. Uh, oh yeah, Roger. He's Pacino. been, yeah, yeah, Roger. He's been on this podcast too. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, I love Roger. Um, and that also makes sense as well, right? I mean, one of the big focuses of Secretary Blinken is national security, uh -huh. and so Roger is there representing public safety, emergency response. Yeah. And so that's you know big thing. All right, so let's talk about the future. What sure. does the future look like for Paradigm Robotics and, and the Firebot? Like in the next one or two years while you're still in college? Mm -hmm. yeah. Actually, yeah, that's, a, that's a good way to phrase the question. What's the future like before you graduate? <laughs> that's a good question. It's something that keeps on changing as well. Um, thinking about the future is, is not tough in a startup, but it keeps evolving, right? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of my responsibilities as a CEO is helping ensure that the team and the organization will be successful, right? So it's understanding, okay, this person will graduate in this amount of time. This person can graduate in this amount of time. Preparing to engage with them and offer them support for post-graduation, right? Got to plan for salaries, got to plan for jobs and things like this. And so what Firebot looks like in one to two years time from an organizational standpoint is we're growing. We're bringing on more team members and planning full-time salaries, planning to engage and build a long-term team. Mm -hmm. On the technical side of things, before I get to business, we hope to finalize our sort of V4 version of the robot. So we built three versions. We're building out our V4 version. This is the version that hits all these key requirements. We're going to do very thorough situational testing of it with our partners around Texas, our fire departments. 
And so we're going to finish this robot, do our thorough testing, right? In between, this connects to the business side, we need to raise funding. So we're looking to raise funding to build five to six versions of these robots to give to our partners in the region, get very thorough systematic feedback on it to build what we call our Gen 1 version, our mass uh, market model. And so this mm-hmm. is a model that will be really released commercially. And so essentially over the next one to two years, we hope to commercially launch. We're trying to move fast, move quick. And on the business side of things is raise funds, prepare to bring our organization towards a full-time team, secure uh, our IP and things like this, um, do work to acquire grants if possible. So really just everything pushing forward. Our goal sort of by one to two years from now is to see Firebot being used by our partner fire departments across the across Texas and specifically have them use it in a real structural fire, mm-hmm. right? Seeing them use it and actually search for victims while that there is several regulatory and sort of legal things we're sort of working on identifying is a key metric for our success. And so we've been working with policymakers, legislative people, municipal governments, fire departments to identify all these things and work around them. And so we're confident we're gonna get there we just, you know, we need the team and the funding to keep pushing forward. And yeah, so that's a big part of my CEO responsibilities. Yeah, I think I think you you'll do it. I mean, it's the way it's structured right now is perfect. You just mentioned not having to pay salaries and uh, yep. and the, the infrastructure around you is something that even investors can't really provide right now. They right. can't fund you to the point where you can use where you can pay for laboratory uh, laboratories, right. where you can pay for the equipment that you get for free from right. UT and exactly. that, you know, some of these equipment can be millions of dollars. No, you got it. I mean, I'm, I have yeah. access towards equipment that is worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Right? Oh, okay. <laughs> in, in sort of a cumulative sense. Right? Okay. The, the laboratory I work out of is yeah. worth a couple of half, like 50 million. Uh, we work with another lab, it's worth 20 million. You added up a couple of hundred. But all this equipment is useful towards our product. Yeah. We're innovating at the microscopic scale, right? We're innovating at the macroscopic scale. And so we need a wide variety of equipment to do yeah. that. So yeah, absolutely. University yeah. is very helpful. So one way to phrase this basically is, is to say, uh, we are at um, a development stage right now where um, we're getting millions of dollars of value for right. free that investors can't provide. And within the next one or two years, uh, we should be at the point where, okay, we're ready to go. Um, yep. We're ready to just start deploying and right. things like that. And then and investors can come in and build the business side of things for us or something like that. You got it. Does that yeah. make sense? Absolutely. No, yeah. that's the way to phrase it. We're in R&D. We're at an R&D stage. Uh-huh. We're developing rapidly. We're hoping to commercialize and we're utilizing the resources of, you know, one of the largest and most powerful universities. So Yeah, yeah. Top 10 university <laughs> in in engineering at least. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. This has been an awesome discussion. It's been great, Daniel. Uh, if people want to reach out to you, how can they reach out to you? Yeah. How can they reach you? Um, feel free to check out our website, paradigmrobotics.tech, or reach out to me, uh, team at paradigmrobotics.tech. Shoot me an email. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, other kinds mm-hmm. of things as well. Um, I think that's a, if you want to find me, you can definitely find me. Hey, um, yeah, absolutely. Especially if you're interested in working for something that's innovative, right? Absolutely. Uh, no, we're looking to bring on a team and hire people as well as bring on investors and things. So if you're looking to join the Paradigm Robotics team, yeah. check out our website and you know, feel free to reach out to me. So Fantastic. Thanks for coming, Siddharth. Thanks uh, so much for having me, Dan. Appreciate uh, the discussion so far. This was, like I said, this was awesome. This was great. This is really good. This is awesome. <laughs> and with that, we've come to the end of another episode of the Hard Tech Podcast. I'll see you guys on the next one. Thank you.